The Black Doctors Podcast highlights the stories of minority professionals with the goal of inspiring others. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and share with others because the next generation can't be what they don't see. Tune in every Monday to hear our stories told by us. Hello and welcome back to the Black Doctors Podcast. I'm Stephen, your host. This week, I'm so excited to be speaking with Dr. Tisha Rowe. She is a physician entrepreneur native of Miami, Florida. She attended the University of Miami for undergrad and completed medical school at Temple University School of Medicine. She did a residency in family medicine at Baylor, obtained a master's of business administration and practiced for a while, ultimately stepping out on her own and doing some entrepreneurial efforts. Um, with uh, online health, telehealth, and now starting her own private practice. Dr. Rowe, thank you so much for joining us. Awesome. Thank you for having me. So we usually start at the very beginning. When did you decide to become a physician? According to my mother when I was five years old and as long as I can remember. And uh, how did that, did that change at all during high school or college? Oh, very much so. In high school, I decided I wanted to be an interior decorator, went back to wanting to be a doctor, got to college, changed my mind again. I just wanted to go into business. I didn't want to be a doctor anymore. And um, I am Jamaican and much like, you know, Jamaican and what I've heard from lots of African and Caribbean parents, you know, my mom was very adamant you know, that, you know, I stick to what I'd always want to do. And ultimately, I'm glad that she did push me. I ended up in business anyway, but I think that was the right path for me going through medicine. Yeah. So coming out of college, how was the application process for you? So, you know, I, I see a lot of stories about people who tried unsuccessfully several times. I, I, I'm thankful for the grace of God that I had a very smooth application process. One thing I will say in case there are any pre-med students listening, I attended the University of Miami and I was told that I would not get into medical school if I made any C's. Uh, that put a lot of pressure on me and I made one C. So I felt like, okay, I'm not going to get in and that I had to make double digits on every area of the MCAT. And I I don't know if they've changed the scoring at all. Um, But at that time, you know, I made double digits on every section except one, but my average came out to what would have been double digits in every section. So just saying that it was smooth in that I got in. I only took the MCAT once. I got into medical school on my first try. I matched into my first pick for residency. But at the same time, it was um, riddled with self-doubt and a lot of it because of unrealistic um, standards that people gave me. And I and now I know that is completely untrue. Wow. So you applied successfully that first time to medical school. How was your time at Temple? Amazing. So I just made lifelong friends. It was challenging, no doubt. Every medical school, I'm sure, is challenging in that way. But I just had an incredible circle. Uh, We had a program there called the Recruitment and Retention Center where we could go and borrow books and just think they made things as easy as possible so that we could stick it out. And I feel that the clinical experience at Temple was just amazing. Philadelphia has, I believe, six medical schools compared to Florida at the time had less than six in the entire 
state. So we got to see and speak to people in other programs and Temple was just very well um, respected from the clinical side. And it really was, you're going to see it once and then you're going to do it. And so I went into residency feeling very confident and comfortable. And I would highly recommend Temple um, to anyone pursuing medical school. And I know they've recently started offering scholarships, um, full scholarships to black males. So, Oh, wow. Yeah. I remember seeing some uh, press releases about it. I think it's great that you had a positive experience in in medical school because, you know, so many people talk about the negatives and the the struggle. And and you mentioned the the self-doubt, but the depression, anxiety, all those problems that come with medical education, but that doesn't have to be that way. It's not everybody's story. So I I will say that I definitely struggled with all of that. Um, And I don't, I will say I had a great medical school experience, but I don't remember any check-ins on mental health. And I moved away from my family. So I was very much alone outside of my friendship circle. And I did struggle with depression and anxiety and all of those things and didn't really feel like I had a resource for it. But when I say amazing, I'm, I always try to look at the bright side and I feel like I had a good support system in my circle, but not necessarily the necessary support from the institution in that aspect of it. And I'm only sharing that because you bring it up. And I think probably across the board, um, medical schools can just do a whole lot better in that space. Yeah. And and thank you for sharing that. So if you today went back to yourself and medical school as a mentor, what would you say? I would say, you know, stop expecting to fail Hmm. Uh, because I don't think I know Standing in line to accept my diploma, I was like, so I I did it. Like, (laughs) I'm actually like going to walk across the stage now because I just kept expecting I'm going to fail the next class. I'm going to fail the next module. Like, I'm not. It's so important that children have examples because in retrospect, it was that lack of examples. And I give Temple credit for doing the um, scholarships for black males, but it came out of sanctions for not having enough diversity. And we really didn't have many black professors. You know, I think we had maybe one on the academic side and one in my clinical rotation. So to go through four years without seeing that representation, I definitely think um, made the self-doubt worse, especially if you come from an area like I did where there were no doctors and the doctors you went to weren't black. So there's this idea that, you know, coming out of the hood to become a doctor, you feel like you're trying to be an astronaut, like you're trying to go to space, like you, you don't see black doctors, they're foreign to you. And this idea that you can be that, um, was very much until that very last moment, like, okay, this is not, this is not going to happen. Even with great grades and you made it and you're here, just, it's just not going to happen. Absolutely. And so thankful that you're on the other side and you're able to help change that narrative and provide that representation. Yeah. It's, it's, it feels good to be able to be that. And medicine is, far from perfect, but the times where I feel like, you know, I could, I could do something else at this point with my skill set, I still love it and, um, think it's a very rewarding career and am 
would mentor any student that really feels like this is what they want to do with their lives. Absolutely. Speaking of medicine, so you went into residency for family medicine. I feel like family medicine is like the Swiss army knife of specialties. And I've received so many different stories for why people chose that field. What drew you to family medicine? So the the funny part is I, I had like the, I was the most indecisive when it came to choosing a specialty, which is why I'm in family medicine. I truly loved OB. I could have been an OB. I loved emergency medicine. At one point I was like, I'm going to do emergency medicine. I loved surgery. I wanted to at one point be an orthopedic surgeon because I just, I think the only thing I really didn't love was um, hospital medicine. And I was like, how am I supposed to choose? Like, I love it all. I love psych. And so I, I laughed because I convinced two of my best friends to do emergency medicine because that was the last, I was like, this is it. It's the best specialty. They both switched from what they wanted to do to emergency. And then I switched from emergency to family. So (laughs) um, it all came down to, what I heard from attendings about burnout and lifestyle. And I was like, well, with family, I still can do procedures. I still can do, uh, you know, manage urgent like cases and do things like that. And I still get to do OB, which I liked and psych, which I liked. So for me, it was that ability. And I, I did well on, you know, I've always been good at standardized testing. So I remember the head of the ortho department being like, Letitia, like, I'll write your recommendations. Are you sure this is what you want to do that you want to switch? So a lot of people try to like paint family as this, oh, well, you can't. Um, get into a a specialty. You don't have the scores. You don't Mm -hmm. have this. It was definitely not that for me. It was something I chose because I wanted to have variety and not um, be pigeonholed into one thing. And I was having a conversation with my, um, my assistant and she was like, but you can't do psych stuff. I'm like, I diagnose and treat psych disorders. Like I can do that. Like I don't need anyone's supervision. I refer out to psych for what I feel are complicated cases, but a large part of my practice is mental health, you know, and a large part is women's health. So I wish there was more education on, you know, family medicine gives you that flexibility to pivot. You know, you can do some derm, you can change throughout your career without having to do more training. You just have to take the time and, you know, do whatever courses you need to make sure your skill set is up to par for that area. And I think it's really important now when you have nurse practitioners and PAs coming out and they can do whatever they want, right? Pretty much and say, okay, well, I'm going to do neuro because I worked for a neuro doctor for a couple months and I'm going to do derm in New York and compete with dermatologists. And, um, you know, as family medicine, I really think we're very respectful of special and not overstepping. But at the same time, it does give you more flexibility than other professions where I see people feel stuck in a certain specialty. And then they're like, oh, well, I need to go do another residency because I hate this now. And I've never felt like that. Yeah. You've done uh, four years of medical school and uh, family medicine residency. So you can definitely practice to your full level of training. Yep. So as your story continues to unfold, you started out in Florida, you moved up to Philly, your residency program took you down to Houston. You're just moving all around the country. How was your experience, uh, the culture shifts, family medicine residency? How was that? 
You know, it there mm-hmm. there were a lot of different um, shifts <laughs> culturally. The Northeast is completely different from the South, so that was a big adjustment. Just you know, um, learning to deal with different communication styles. People are just a little more cut and dry there, and moving to Texas made me realize like how different the South is in different parts of the South. Because in Miami, we very much consider ourselves the South. However, the South in Texas is different. And um, I really feel like I'd maybe come into contact with racism. It was slight, in Miami, in college, like it was never outright. Like it would just be, people would say things that you're like, mm, that kind of doesn't rub me well. Whereas in Texas, it would be like, boom, in your face, like outright, you know, good old boys are celebrated and you got to learn that good old boys really aren't good at all. And it's like this different, like unapologetic kind of this is the way we are. And I don't say that to deter anyone from coming here because I think it's a great place to practice medicine, but it's not, it is very much, if it's a red state, it's, it's very red and people need to understand that if they come here. And so it just was me, you know, learning to find my circles and um, just be aware of what it is and, and, deal with it accordingly. They're great people here, but there's some things that I didn't experience other places that I experienced here. Yeah. Was there any uh, particular experience in residency that you can remember? Oh yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, the, and, and it, it's something that is so branded in your soul. Like you're like, yeah, you remember, you know, working in the emergency room and interviewing a patient and asking for their allergies. And they said, you know, oh. and I was like, I didn't even know what to to say or do. And I just went to my attending and I just told them what they said. And the attending, thank God, came over and basically, you know, put them in their place for lack of a better word. But it's just like you dealt with things like that. And, you know, um, people are coming in on a stretcher in the emergency room and just like, you know, um, screaming explicitly explicatives like racial slurs um you know things that are just like okay all right okay i see this is where we are this is what we're doing and even you know beyond residency as attending situations where you know someone adamantly tells the front desk that they didn't see a doctor today and they would like to know um why they did not see a doctor after they saw you And it's like, okay, put them back in the room. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. So, so knowing what you know now, because a lot of trainees and medical students, they're in these positions where they, their power, they feel powerless or they're looking at where they should go for residency or medical school. How would you, or what would you say to them about navigating these situations? I would say at the end of the Mm -hmm. day, um, We have a far way to go as a country and there's nowhere you're going to go where you're going to be isolated from these type of experiences. Even if you go to a very diverse city, you can encounter it. So don't base your decisions on what you think you might 
encounter, um, go to what you feel is the best program for you and where you feel a connection with the people. I really connected with the people that interviewed me. Most were not black. Um, but I felt connected and I, and my feeling was correct. You know, I, I had an amazing program director, amazing upper level residents. You know, I was the only African-American in my family medicine class, but I've, I've, I had a great experience amongst them. What happened outside of that and in the world, you just can't control and you just have to know that you belong in the position you're in and own that and don't ever let anyone um, take that from you in their words or actions. That's good. So Dr. Rowe, we talked about uh, your, your an undergrad, you wanted to go into business. You ultimately decided to pursue an MBA. What was the time frame between finishing residency and starting that MBA program? So I applied to an MD MBA program, meaning I should have done my MBA at Temple, chickened out, and then applied for a uh, residency and MBA program. So I went into residency day one, knowing I would be getting my MBA as a part of my residency in year three and four, which is what happened. So at um, Baylor, they gave you the option instead of a three-year residency, mine was four. My third year, I had to go to class for my MBA every Friday and Saturday. So I worked six days a week for that entire year. And then my fourth year, I was effectively a fellow, but basically a practicing attending and had to finish my MBA that year. Okay. And what were the classes like coming from, uh, you know, a lot of medicine back to the business world? How was that? It was, uh, it was probably the most challenging I won't say, I would say academically, if you remove the clinical side of medicine, right? So in terms of book work, college, medicine, it was challenging for me because I've always been good at math, but it was just not something I had ever done. So, you know, the economy, finance, operations, all these things you've never seen are being thrown at you. It was, it was challenging, but I say the best part of having an MBA is it changed the way I think. And it was something for me that it's like, once your eyes are opened, you can never go back to thinking the old way again. I can never, you know, and I won't say never because I would do anything if it meant taking care of my family, but it would be extremely difficult for me to work for someone um, in medicine, knowing the percentage of revenue doctors generate versus what we're paid as a salary. Um, and I would not have understood that without an MBA. And so it was, the coursework was challenging, but I think it was necessary. If I had a mentee today going to medical school, I would tell them their undergraduate major should be business hands down and just take your prerequisites. I would, they're not going to teach you in medical school and they're not going to teach you in residency. So the only reasonable time to get that knowledge without getting an MBA is undergrad. I would recommend any pre-med student major in business. You may have to have a little bit more challenging, you know, time integrating science and business, but it's the way to go. Wow. So Tell me about your course from the MBA program. I know you started several ventures 
couple of telehealth or at least one telehealth business. Where did you go from that MBA um, as you launched your, into your entrepreneurial aspect of your career? So interestingly enough, I, I was exhausted by the time I finished that. I had my son my last year of um, residency, so I, I was pregnant through half of business school. And I, I finished business school and residency basically with a newborn in my hand. So I went into the MBA program with this thought process of, okay, I'm going to practice medicine for like 10 years. I already went to medical school and then I'm just going to open non-medical businesses and, you know, not work part-time as a doctor. But by the time I finished um, residency, I was like, I want to work part-time right now. I don't even want to seriously went to my um, employer at the time because it was a program that was Kelsey Siebold and Baylor. And I was like, if you all have a part-time job, I want it. At the time, they were not offering part-time positions, but the department head's wife was a physician and she wanted to go part-time. So they were willing to let one other person go part-time to balance her out. And I basically was told I would be able to, and at the last minute, due to a huge change in their business structure, they weren't able to do it. And then I ended up going to do urgent care. So I didn't go, I didn't leave that program ready to rock and roll in business. So I just, that was not where I was. I was exhausted. I'd gone straight from undergrad, med school, residency, no breaks except, you know, that one summer after first year. And I I was just like, I just need a break. Went, did urgent care for a year and a half and felt like this is not what I signed up for. I didn't feel like I was really helping people in the way I aspired to do by going to medical school. It felt like, you know, okay, I'm seeing strep 20 times a day, flu 20 times a day, and then people seeking drugs. And so that experience, I was like, I want to practice medicine, but not this way. And what I'd seen in residency, I didn't want to do it that way either. And I was like, you know what? Just try. Like you have the MBA, you know how to start a business, you know how to write a business plan. Worst case, you fail and you go get a job. At least you're failing when you're young. You're not blowing your retirement. Just, just try to do it. And I decided to start my own practice. And day one, I wanted to do telemedicine. I just come up with this idea that, you know, why can't, why am I driving 30 to 45 minutes to sit in a clinic for 12 hours, driving 30 minutes back home? So basically I'm away from my 18 month old for 14 hours a day. This just doesn't make any sense. And I was like, I could do half of this just talking to a patient. And that's what made me want to do telemedicine. And this, what year was this? 2014. Wow. So were there a lot of people in the telemedicine space at this point? No, Teladoc was around, but they weren't getting a lot of visits at that time. Um, you know, MD Live, I think, may have come a little bit later, or they weren't as well known until later. So, doing my research, um, I found out about them, but in terms of the general public knowing about them, it just wasn't there for anyone. And I was 
very active in the American Telemedicine Association from the you know beginning of my career. So I could see, you know, the lack of there were no doctors even going like barely I was going. But the majority of the people at these conferences were people starting telemedicine businesses and trying to find doctors that would work for them. Huh. So you joined an organization, you can kind of see what was going on. But how do you start a telemedicine So back then, I mean, I had to basically figure it out. Today, what I do is help doctors who want to start a telemedicine business to do that. Um, But effectively, you need everything you would to start a regular practice. It's absolutely no different. They even require you to have a physical address to be able to do virtual visits. You can't just say, hey, I'm going to do virtual visits. My business address is my home. So there are a lot of little things that people don't know or realize if you're going to do it as a private practice. But it's it's starting a practice, but you're seeing your patients online. And then uh, were you the only physician at your business or did you branch out and hire more people? Initially, I was the only one. And then within the first two years, I had like 25 and it just doubled from there. 50. Wait, 25 employees? Oh, doctors, other physicians. All of my doctors were independent um, contractors. I did not have any employees. I just had doctors working for me as independent contractors. Wow. And you still work in that, that space or what, what's the nature of that business? I still, we still, I still have that company, which is Rodox. At this point, I basically coach doctors who are starting their telemedicine practice and provide their EMR, their marketing and their answering service for their practices. Okay. So what's your target? How can, um, I guess, what type of people are you looking for? that would benefit from Rodox? Our ideal um, client is a doctor who is leaving an employed model and wanting to start their own practice or a physician who is considering retiring in the next three to five years and gradually wants to phase out of going to the office every day. Um, More than happy to work with residents, but I really think before you practice online, you should have experience in the office because you're going to have to draw from those clinical skills to be able to effectively diagnose and treat without a on hands-on exam. So our, our ideal doctor is someone who's probably practiced like three to five years, had a couple jobs or one job, and now wants to branch out on their own. And they can be anywhere in terms of location? Anywhere. As long as they're licensed and they do have to get their own malpractice, they absolutely, they can be anywhere. I've even had doctors in other countries. I've, I have doctors today licensed in um, Jamaica in the past. We've had doctors in um, India, um, in Turkey, in China. So we've helped doctors all over the world. Wow. I could literally talk to you about this for a lot longer, but if people want to know more I assume they can go to your website. Absolutely. It's Rodox, R-O-W-E-D-O-C-S.com. That is incredible. I had no idea that the company was that. I knew you were doing some big stuff. I didn't know it was this. Yeah. Yeah. At one point, and I, I don't research as much as I did in the beginning, we were definitely um, the largest African-American telemedicine company. And... 
from everything I can find, like the first national black telemedicine company. Wow. Congratulations. Hats off to you. Thank you. And we're getting short on time, but we have to talk about your newest venture, which looks incredible. And it is called the Honeycomb Clinics. Can you tell us about this? Absolutely. So, um, Having coached over 100 doctors to open their telemedicine practices, um, I saw a lot of common themes in people who did not succeed in terms of um, what they needed but weren't necessarily prepared to do or pay for. And uh, I want more doctors to go into private practice. So I wanted to make it as easy as possible for doctors to go into private practice. So the Honeycomb Clinic is a co-working space for doctors. If you're not familiar with co-working spaces, um, Google WeWork. So we call ourselves the WeWork of Medicine. It's where entrepreneurs rent space in one building and they not only just work independently, they collaborate. So if you go into a WeWork, you may have a graphic designer. Down the hall, you may have an engineer. Down the hall, you may have a marketing person. And they create this ecosystem where you're not just renting space, you're working with other people in that space and bringing value to the other individuals. So very similarly with Honeycomb Clinic, we want to put um, together physicians who are in private practice so you don't have to work for anyone else. You are your own boss. You work for yourself, but you're in the same building with 20 other doctors. So you can be in private practice, but your patient can come to that same location to see a psychiatrist, to see an orthopedic, to see a derm. And we're all practicing under Honeycomb Clinic, but let's say you have another location in Atlanta, call that whatever you want. You may have another location in another part of the city. And it's going to be a great option for surgeons because the way Houston is set up is very expensive and difficult to open a private practice in the city because of the high cost. So a lot of people go out to the suburbs. Well, the problem is the patients don't want to drive to the suburbs. So they end up going to the larger groups because they are the ones in the city. So by creating this co-working space for doctors, we'll be able to compete with the larger groups that are in the city, but the doctors don't have to pay the rent they normally would if they were in the city as an individual doctor. And they now have the same advantage of the large groups in that you have 10 doctors in one place, which is a huge draw for people that don't want to drive to 10 different locations because as they're older, they may have to go get a mammogram, um, get their knee scoped, see a cardiologist, see a dermatologist. Why not do that all in the same place? But the doctors are all in private practice. Um, so that is the model. That's what we're working on. You pay one flat fee and a percentage of your revenue, and we do everything for you, your staffing, your billing, your collections, and your marketing. Wow. That, that is brilliant. Is there anybody else out there really doing this right now? 
I found one in California and one in D.C. Um, that are doing it. And so it's very new. And, you know, a lot of people now that the telemedicine wave have hit, oh my God, yeah, I want to do telemedicine. I'm like, you all are so behind. Yes, you're going to do telemedicine now, but you're competing with Kaiser. Good luck. You know, I probably will sell my telemedicine business in the near future because you missed the wave. And I was telling people for years, they wouldn't listen. Now they're like, oh my God, you were right, Tisha. Yes, I get it. Thank you. Now let's see what's next, right? Because it's not about what's happening now. It's about looking forward and finding the next thing. And telemedicine is going to be the biggest driver of physician co-working spaces because the need for office space is going to decrease. So um, if you're seeing more patients online, the insurance companies are going to decrease reimbursement. You're going to have to find a way to cut costs to survive or you're going to have to go get a job and you're going to be competing many times um, except for surgeons with mid-levels for those positions. And that's just what it is. Nurse practitioners and PAs are growing at a rate of 50% um, over the last five years. In the same time frame, physicians have grown by 10%. So if you simply look at the numbers, um, the easiest way to cut healthcare costs is to replace doctors with mid-levels. The only way you can protect yourself from that happening is to have your own practice. There is no other protection. Wow. You are putting on a, a clinic right now. Um, so for people, obviously you can have a physician signing up to work at the Honeycomb Clinic, but what other ways can people get involved and support your, your new venture? So we are actively um, raising capital for this venture and just really quickly on fundraising in the startup space, you know, people who don't understand may say, well, well, why not just go take out a loan? What we're trying to do, we're going to need millions of dollars to do. And we've actually already taken out a $3.5 million loan for phase one. And we're currently fundraising for phase two and three. And so um, for those people who may be still in private practice, but want an exit strategy in the next three to five years, this will be a great opportunity to invest, hold your investment. And when you're ready to exit, hey, you know, not only are you working at Honeycomb Clinic, but you're also an owner in the Honeycomb Clinic. So um, the best thing to do to support is, you know, everything right now is under my social media, Tisha Rowe, MD. Find those posts on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, share. And if you're in a position to invest, invest. There it is. Don't miss this wave. Yep. It, it, it really is. And, you know, I, I'm a numbers person. I get excited about numbers. Like, you know, in the same way I, I get excited about medicine, there was $69 billion raised for startups in 2020. It was actually the most money ever raised for startups in history. So while we were going through a pandemic, some people who started businesses have gotten 69 billion or will in the near future, right? So we have to look at um, this landscape as doctors and say, why aren't we creating companies if there's that much money out there to be given to people starting companies? Well, well, Dr. Rowe, that you, it's a lot to think about. Thank you so much for joining us on the show and talking about your, your life story and the incredible work that you're doing in terms of entrepreneurship in the healthcare space. 
Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Um, If there's any way I can support the podcast, I'll definitely be sharing. Um, And I just, you know, applaud you for what you're doing because as um, physicians, sometimes we can be those hidden figures. So bringing our stories to light is so important. And I appreciate what you're doing. Absolutely. To our listeners, check out Rodox if that, uh, if you could benefit from that and then definitely stay tuned to see what the Honeycomb Clinics is, is up to. Awesome. Thank you very much. The Black Doctors Podcast is a nonprofit volunteer passion project with the goal of inspiring all who listen. Tune in next week for another episode of the Black Doctors Podcast with Dr. Stephen Bradley, your friendly neighborhood anesthesiologist.